Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review a few pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss the discovery of ancient Roman treasure in England, a UFO sighting in Alaska, and the horrifying true story behind Moby Dick. The events took place on November 16th, 17th, and 20th. November 16th, 1992. The Hoxon Hoard is discovered by Eric Laws in Hoxon, Suffolk. The Hoxon Hoard is the largest hoard of Roman silver and gold discovered in Britain and the largest collection of gold and silver coins of the 4th and 5th centuries. The hoard consists of 14,865 Roman gold, silver, and bronze coins and approximately 200 items of silver, tableware, and gold jewelry. The coins originated from a number of locations within the Roman Empire and are the only items in the Hawks and Hoard where a definite date and place of manufacture can be established. All of the gold coins and many of the silver coins bear the names and portraits of the emperor in whose reign they were minted. The objects are now in the British Museum in London where the most important pieces and a selection of the rest are on permanent display. The hoard is valued at almost $4 million today. The hoard was discovered in a farm field about one and a half miles southwest of the village of Hoxon. Tenant farmer Peter Watlig lost a hammer and asked his friend Eric Laws, a retired gardener and amateur metal detectorist, to help look for it. While searching the field with his metal detector, Laws discovered silver spoons, gold jewelry, and numerous gold and silver coins. After retrieving a few items, he and Watling notified the landowners and the police without attempting to dig out any more objects. The following day, a team of archaeologists carried out an emergency excavation of the site. The entire hoard was excavated in a single day with the removal of several large blocks and unbroken material for laboratory excavation. The area was searched with metal detectors within a radius of 100 feet from the find spot. Peter Watling's missing hammer was also recovered and donated to the British Museum. Archaeologists were happy that Laws reported the find promptly and basically undisturbed, allowing for a professional excavation. The hoard was buried in an oak chest filled with items in precious metal, sorted mostly by type, with some in smaller wooden boxes and other bags or wrapped in fabric. Remnants of the chest and fittings, such as hinges and locks, were recovered in the excavation. The coins of the hoard dated after AD 407, which coincides with the end of Britain as a Roman province. The excavated hoard was taken to the British Museum. The discovery was leaked to the press, and the Sun newspaper ran a front-page story on November 19th, alongside a picture of Laws with his metal detector. The full contents of the hoard and its value were still unknown, yet the newspaper article claimed that it was worth 10 million pounds. Newspapers lost interest in the hoard quickly, allowing British Museum curators to sort, clean, and stabilize it without further disruption from the press. The initial cleaning and basic conservation was completed within a month of its discovery. 
The Hawkson Horde was buried during a period of great upheaval in Britain, marked by the collapse of the Roman authority in the province, the departure of the majority of Roman Empire, and the first wave of attacks by the Anglo-Saxons. Exactly who owned the Hawkson Horde and their reasons for burying it are not known and probably never will be. However, the Horde itself and its context provide some important clues. The Horde was evidently buried carefully, some distance from any buildings. The Horde likely represents only a portion of the wealth of the owners. There are a number of theories about why the Horde was buried. One is that the Horde represented a deliberate attempt to keep the wealth safe, perhaps in response to one of the many upheavals facing Roman Britain in the early 5th century. However, archaeologist Peter Guest argues the Horde was buried because the items in it were used as part of a system of gift exchange, and as Britain separated from the Roman Empire, they were no longer required. A third hypothesis is that the Hoxton Horde represents the proceeds of a robbery, buried to avoid detection. It has also been speculated that the contents of the Horde originally belonged to a military family that had to move around more frequently. Items from the Horde have been on display at the British Museum since the treasure was discovered. Here's my take on the Hoxton Horde. Finding hidden treasure, especially in a situation like that, is something I think about a lot more than anyone should. One time, uh, I was digging a trench to run a water line, and I came across an old box made of stone, buried about a foot below the ground. I tried to pry the box open with a shovel, uh, but the lid would not budge. I mean, it was sealed shut. And then I tried slamming the box against the concrete pillar to bust it open, to try busting it open, and it actually just broke a huge chunk of concrete off the pillar. About 20-30 minutes later, I realized the box was actually a thick stepping stone. It was all one piece. As part of an old walkway, it looked just like a treasure box, I think. Or maybe my mind was just warped on excitement at the thought of finding hidden treasure. November 17th, 1986. The flight crew of Japan Airlines Flight 1628 are involved in a UFO sighting incident while flying over Alaska. Japan Airlines Flight 1628 was a UFO incident involving a Japanese Boeing 747 cargo aircraft. The aircraft was en route from Paris to Tokyo. Just after 5 p.m. over eastern Alaska, the crew first witnessed two unidentified objects to their left. The objects were observed by all three crew members who all have very extensive flight experience as well, with the lead pilot, Captain Tarachi, having over 10,000 hours of flight experience. The objects abruptly rose from below and closed in to seemingly escort their aircraft. The captain noticed two crafts to his far left and about 2,000 feet below his altitude, which he assumed to be military aircrafts at first. They were pacing his flight path and speed. 
the two objects abruptly veered to a position about 500 feet to 1,000 feet in front of the aircraft, assuming a stacked configuration. In doing so, they activated some kind of reverse thruster, and their lights became extremely bright. The flare from the reverse thrust lasted for about 3 to 7 seconds, to the extent that the flight captain could feel the warmth of their glows. To match the speed of the aircraft from their sideways approach, the objects displayed what Captain Tarachi described as a disregard for inertia. He said, The thing was flying as if there was no such thing as gravity. It sped up, then stopped, then flew at our speed, in our direction, appearing to stand still. The next instant, it changed course. In other words, the flying object had overcome gravity. Air traffic control was notified but could not confirm any traffic in the indicated position. After three to five minutes, the object assumed a side-to-side configuration, which they maintained for another ten minutes. They accompanied the aircraft with an undulating motion and some back-and-forth rotation of jet nozzles, which seemed to be under automatic control, causing them to flare with brighter or duller luminosity. Each object had a square shape, consisting of two rectangular arrays of what appeared to be glowing nozzles or thrusters, separated by a dark central section. Captain Tarachi speculated in his drawings that the objects would appear cylindrical if viewed from another angle, and that the observed moment of the nozzles could be ascribed to the cylinder's rotation. The objects left abruptly at about 5.23 p.m., moving to a point below the horizon to the east. After the first objects disappeared, Captain Tarachi noticed a pale band of light that mirrored their altitude, speed, and direction. Nothing was initially found on radar, but the Regional Operations Control Center, the ROCC, directly in his flight path, reported a surge primary return a few minutes later. A surge primary return is a conventional radar sensor that illuminates a large portion of space with an electromagnetic wave and receives the reflected waves from targets within that space. And now there was an image being picked up on the radar. As the city lights of Fairbanks began to illuminate the third object, Captain Tarachi believed to perceive the outline of a gigantic spaceship on his port side that was twice the size of an aircraft carrier. A terrified Captain Tarachi, in coordination with the Anchorage Center, attempted evasive maneuvers such as flying in a circle and changing altitude. The gigantic UFO shadowed all maneuvers before suddenly disappearing into the skyline. Details reported by the military controller indicated that the UFOs were traveling thousands of miles per hour as they maneuvered in the airspace around the 747. It has been speculated that the sighting was an early flight of a stealth bomber, which was in development at the time, or the result of faulty radar imaging. However, both theories have obvious holes, such as the size of the craft and the lights observed by the three crew members. Captain Tarachi also reported UFO sightings on two prior occasions, which raised red flags to skeptics. Here's my take on Flight 1628. I don't know. I just don't know. If you take what the crew saw, the radar images, and everything else we're seeing today, 
I don't know. There might be something out there. November 20th, 1820. An 80-ton sperm whale attacks and sinks the Essex, a whaling ship from Nantucket, Massachusetts, 2,000 miles from the western coast of South America. The 1851 novel Moby Dick was inspired by this story. By the time of her fateful voyage, the Essex was already 20 years old, but because so many of her previous voyages had been profitable, had gained a reputation as a lucky vessel. Captain George Pollard Jr. and first mate Owen Chase served together on the ship's previous trip, which had been highly successful and led to their promotions. In 1819, at the age of 29, Pollard was one of the youngest men to ever command a whaling ship. Chase was 23, and the youngest member of the crew was a cabin boy named Thomas Dickerson. The Essex had recently been totally refitted, but at only 88 feet in length, it was small for a whale ship. The ship was equipped with four whale boats, each about 28 feet in length, and had an additional whale boat below deck. The Essex departed from Nantucket on August 12, 1819, on what was expected to be a roughly two-and-a-half-year voyage to the bountiful whaling grounds off the west coast of South America. The crew numbered 21 men in total. Two days after departing from Nantucket, the Essex was hit by a sudden squall in the Gulf Stream and nearly sank. The ship lost the top gallant sail and two whaleboats were destroyed, with an additional whaleboat damaged. Captain Pollard elected to continue the voyage without replacing the two boats or repairing the damage. The Essex rounded Cape Horn in January of 1820 after a transit of five weeks, which was extremely slow. With this and the unsettling incident in the Gulf Stream, the crew began to talk of ill omens. Their spirits were temporarily lifted during the long spring and summer hunt in the warm waters of the South Pacific Ocean, traveling north along the western coast of South America. The crew was divided into three groups of six, each which manned one of the three usable whaleboats whenever whales were sighted. The remaining three men stayed aboard to manage the Essex. Each whaleboat was led by one of the three officers, who then chose five other crew members. In September of 1820, a sailor named Henry DeWitt deserted at Atacames, a beach town located on Ecuador's northern Pacific coast, reducing the crew to 20 men. While sailors fled whaling ships all the time, the desertion was bad news for Captain Pollard because each of the ship's three whaleboats required a crew of six. This meant only two men would remain aboard the Essex while a whale hunt was in progress, which was not sufficient to safely handle a ship of that size. After finding the area's population of whales exhausted, the crew encountered other whalers who told them of a vast newly discovered hunting ground known as the Offshore Ground located about 2,500 nautical miles to the south and west. This was an immense distance from the known shores for the whalers, and the crew had heard rumors that cannibals populated many islands along the South Pacific. To restock their food supplies for the long journey, the Essex sailed for the Galapagos Islands. 
the crew needed to fix a serious leak and initially anchored on October 8, 1820. During a week at anchor, they captured 300 Galapagos giant tortoises to supplement the ship's food stores. They then sailed for Charles Island, where on October 22nd, they took another 60 tortoises. The tortoises weighed between 100 and 800 pounds each. The sailors captured them alive and allowed some of them to roam freely on the ship, and planned to butcher them at sea as needed. While hunting on Charles Island, helmsman Thomas Chappelle decided to set a fire as a prank. It was the height of the dry season, and the fire quickly burned out of control, surrounding the hunters and forcing them to run through the flames to escape. By the time the men returned to the Essex, almost the entire island was burning. The next day, the island was still burning as the ship sailed for the offshore grounds. After a full day of sailing, the fire was still visible on the horizon. When the Essex finally reached the promised fishing grounds thousands of miles west of the coast of South America, the crew was unable to find any whales for days. Tension mounted among the officers of the Essex, especially between Pollard and Chase. When they finally found a whale on November 16th, it surfaced directly beneath Chase's boat, smashing it into pieces. At 8 in the morning on November 20th, the lookout noticed whale spouts, and the three remaining whaleboats set out to pursue a pod of sperm whales. On the leeward side of the Essex, Chase's whaleboat harpooned a whale, but its tail struck the boat and opened up a seam forcing the crew to cut the harpoon line and return to the Essex for another repair. Two miles away off the windward side, the two other boats each harpooned a whale and were dragged towards the horizon away from the Essex in what whalers call a Nantucket sleigh ride. Chase was repairing the damaged whaleboat on board the Essex when the crew sighted an abnormally large male sperm whale, roughly 85 feet long, acting strangely. It was motionless on the surface, facing the ship, and then began to dive and swim towards the vessel, picking up speed. The whale rammed the Essex, rocking the boat from side to side, and then dove under, surfacing close on the ship's starboard side. It was motionless again and appeared to be stunned. Chase prepared to harpoon the whale from the deck, but when he realized that its tail was only inches from the rudder, he changed his mind. The whale could easily destroy it if it was attacked. Fearing that the ship could be struck thousands of miles away from land with no way to steer it, he decided against harpooning the whale. The whale recovered, swam several hundred yards forward of the ship, and then turned around to face the ship. Owen Chase recounted the story by saying, I turned around and saw him about 500 yards away directly ahead of us, coming down with twice his ordinary speed and ten times the fury and vengeance. The surf flew in all directions around him, with the continual violent thrashing of his tail. His head was about half out of the water, and again he struck the ship, driving it backwards, and then finally disengaged its head from the shattered timbers and swam off, never to be seen again. Chase and the remaining sailors frantically tried to add rigging to the only remaining whaleboat, while the steward William Bond ran below to gather the captain's sea chest and whatever navigational aids he could find. Chase recounted the events again. The captain's boat was the first that reached us. He stopped about a boat's length off, 
but had no power to utter a single syllable. He was so completely overpowered with the spectacle before him. The cause of the whale's aggression is not known. In the book The Heart of the Sea, author Nathaniel Philbrick speculated that it may have first struck the boat accidentally, or have had its curiosity aroused by the sound of a hammer as a whaler worked to repair a damaged whaleboat by nailing in a replacement board. The frequency and sound of the nailing may have been similar to those made by a bull sperm whale to communicate. The Essex was attacked approximately 2,000 nautical miles west of South America. After spending two days salvaging what supplies they could from the waterlogged wreck, the 20 sailors prepared to set out in three small whaleboats, aware that they had very inadequate supplies of food and fresh water for a journey to land. The boats were rigged with makeshift masts and sails taken from the Essex, and boards were added to heighten the gunwales and prevent large waves from spilling over the sides. They had two sets of navigational equipment and two copies of maritime charts. The third boat was left without any means of navigation except to keep within sight of the other two boats. The officers deduced that the closest known islands, the Marquesas, were more than 1,200 miles to the west, and Captain Pollard intended to make for them, but the crew, led by Chase, voiced their fears that the islands might be inhabited by cannibals and voted to sail east instead, for South America. Unable to sail against the trade winds, the boats would first need to sail south for 1,000 miles before they could take advantage of the westerlies to turn towards South America, which would still be another 3,000 miles to the east. Even with the knowledge that this route would require them to travel twice as far as the route to the Marquesas, Pollard accepted the crew's decision and the boats set their course due south. On December 20th, exactly one month after the whale attack and within hours of the crew beginning to die of thirst, the boats landed on uninhabited Henderson Island, a small uplifted coral atoll within the modern-day British territory of the Pitcairn Islands. The men incorrectly believed that they had landed on Ducey Island, a similar atoll about 200 miles to the east. Had they landed on Pitcairn Island itself, 120 miles to the southwest, they might have received help. The descendants of the survivors of HMS Bounty, who famously mutinied in 1789, still live there. On Henderson Island, the Essex crew found a small freshwater spring below the tide line, and the starving men gorged themselves on endemic birds, crabs, eggs, and peppergrass. After just one week, they had largely exhausted the island's food resources. On December 26th, they concluded they would starve if they remained much longer. As most of the crew prepared to set sail in the whaleboats once again, three men opted to stay behind on Henderson. The remaining 17 crewmen in three boats resumed the journey on December 27th with the intention of reaching Easter Island. Within three days, they had exhausted the crabs and birds they had stockpiled from Henderson in preparation for the voyage leaving only a small reserve of the bread previously salvaged from the Essex. They drifted too far south to reach Easter Island, and one by one, the men began to die. The first two men to die were sewn into their clothes and buried at sea. But by late January, the men started keeping the dead bodies of their crew members and resorted to cannibalism. The three boats eventually became separated. 
Chase's whaleboat, which carried five other crew, became separated from the other two boats during a squall. Two ended up dying, with one being buried at sea and the other eaten. Three men died on the third ship before it drifted into the ocean abyss, with the three remaining men on board. It was never seen again. A whaleboat was later found washed up on Ducey Island with the skeletons of three people inside. Although it was suspected to be the missing boat, the remains have never been positively identified. Captain Pollard's boat and the survivor's situation became dire. The men drew rocks to determine who would be sacrificed for the survival of the remaining crew. A young man named Owen Coffin, Captain Pollard's 18-year-old first cousin, whom he had sworn to protect, drew the black rock. Pollard offered to protect his cousin, but Coffin refused. Rocks were drawn again to determine who would be Coffin's executioner. His young friend, Charles Ramsdale, drew the black rock and shot Coffin. Ramsdale, Pollard, and a third crew member, Ray, consumed the body. On February 11th, Ray also died. For the remainder of their journey, Pollard and Ramsdale survived by gnawing on Coffin and Ray's bones. Chase and his two remaining crew members, Benjamin Lawrence and Thomas Nickerson, were rescued by a British cargo vessel off the coast of Chile on February 18th, 89 days after the Essex sank. Pollard and Ramsdale were rescued by a Nantucket whale ship very close to the coast of South America on February 23rd, 93 days after the Essex sank. After officials were informed that three survivors had been left behind on Ducey Island, the authorities sailed across the Pacific to look for the men and actually succeeded in rescuing them as well. By the time they were rescued on April 5th, 1821, the corpses of seven fellow sailors had been consumed. It has been speculated that the entire crew would have survived if they followed Captain Pollard's recommendation and sailed towards Tahiti. Here's my take on the sinking of the Essex. Last week I said being on a ship in the middle of the Great Lakes storm of 1913 would be my biggest fear, but I take that back. Being on board the Essex that fateful day would be much, much worse. And now for a few events that deserve less attention. No, 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 of course not. November 17th, 1968. Viewers of the Raiders-Jets football game in the eastern United States are denied the opportunity to watch its exciting finish when NBC broadcasts the made-for-TV movie Heidi instead. I've never heard of the made-for-TV movie Heidi, and while that story is absolutely hilarious... I don't think it qualifies as history, or even news. November 19th, 1969. Apollo 12 astronauts Pete Conrad and Alan Bean become the third and fourth humans to walk on the moon. I've never heard of them. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, I've heard of them. But I've never heard of these other guys. 
Twelve people have walked on the moon, but our brain-dead citizens, including me, only acknowledge the first two. Pride deserves more attention. Also November 19th, 1998, the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. The United States House of Representatives begins impeachment hearings against United States President Bill Clinton. The original fake impeachment, long before Trump's uh, two fake impeachments. Uh, no politicians actually cared that uh, old Slick Billy was getting a BJ from his fat intern um, because they're all garbage people and they're just playing politics. That's going to do it for today. I uh, see you guys next week. Just and streaming nutritious. <laughs>